listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Did you know this? It is International Cat Day. International Cat Day. Did you know that this day was created in 2002 by the International Fund for Animal Welfare? And International Cat Day is also referred to as Cat Day, World Cat Day, pardon me, in some countries. And since its inception, it has been growing worldwide. How do you feel about cats? You know, most countries observe this unofficial holiday on August 8th. Russia celebrates National Cat Day on the 1st of March. The U.S. celebrates both International Cat Day and their own National Cat Day on October 29th. It does not end there. Cat Day is another unofficial cat holiday observed February 22nd. It originated in Japan and has become a social media sensation that is growing worldwide as people across the globe share cat pictures and videos. There are more cat days than horked up fur balls in a cat hoarder's kitchen. Cats are the worst. The literal Worst. I will share cat stories throughout this hour, and I will tell you the harrowing story of the reason behind why I do not like cats. I do not like cats. Sam, I am. If you feel strongly about cats, either like or loathe, perhaps you are just simply misinformed. Because that's what happens when it comes to politics, at least according to a new report. Data released Wednesday by the Digital Democracy Project found, quote-unquote, strong partisan Canadians were more often incorrect when answering a set of ten basic questions about current political issues. Those who had no partisan affiliation or weaker ties to a political party were less likely to give an incorrect answer. Now, Here's what the report says in the actual executive summary. I've read the report. It says this. Exposure to both mainstream media and, to a greater extent, social media is associated with higher levels of misinformation. One key point of vulnerability is the greater tendency of media consumers with strong partisan tendencies to become misinformed with news exposure, especially via social media. The study asked 10 questions that had relatively clear answers, like whether or not Canada is currently on track to meet climate change commitments under the Paris Accord. The answer to that, ladies and gentlemen, is no. Or whether the deficit was greater in 2018 than it was in 2015. The answer to that is yes. The Digital Democracy Project is a partnership between the Public Policy Forum and the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. Now listen to this from the report about news sources. I I really found this fascinating. Alternative media sources that cover politics from an ideological perspective, like The Rebel or Rabble, do not even crack the top 20 news sources in the survey. However, they enjoy more prominence on Twitter among users of the top Canadian political hashtags who share links to news sites, which is perhaps an indication that the conversation on Twitter does not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the Canadian population at large. No kidding. Twitter is a giant echo chamber. And into that echo chamber sometimes goes some pretty horrific stuff, and it gets amplified. And sometimes it's difficult to get a sense of 
how important it really is in Canada. According to this report, it's not. On a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the highest level of trust, Canadians trust political information from mainstream news organizations at 5.8 out of 10. Similar levels for friends and family at 6. So, you know, when Uncle Frank says something around the dinner table, you're giving him 6 out of 10. But people are comparatively much less trusting of the information provided by major political parties. That's under 5. That's at 4.8. Or on social media, 3.3. And isn't that interesting? We All the hand-wringing, all the pulling of the hair about the upcoming federal election. And according to this, Canadians are not putting that much trust in social media. They put their trust in mainstream media and then... Try and figure this out as a logical leap. The more you believe something, the more you are likely wrong. I want to take you to York Region, where police in that region have said now they've seized drugs, guns, and vehicles and cash related to the investigation of worth more than $45 million. York Police saying this morning they have charged more than 50 people. They've dismantled several drug labs during this probe. Global News reporter Mark Carcassol was at a news conference held in the last hour. Joins me on the line. Hi, Mark. Hi, Alan. What are the York Regional Police saying? Well, this is a, another large-scale uh, drug trafficking operation that they say they have busted up. They say they've made a major dent, and they feel as though they've essentially ended this operation. It's actually two separate investigations here. Project Zen, which was launched earlier this year, and Project Moon, which was launched a little more recently. Uh, as you mentioned, in total, they've led to the seizure of more than $45 million in drugs. I'm standing here in front of the stage inside the auditorium at York Regional Police Headquarters, and there's just stacks and stacks upon stacks of uh, illicit cannabis, methamphetamine pills, uh, MDMA, uh, GHB, which is sort of a clear liquid. They also seized fentanyl, although it's not on display here because they say, and as we all know, it's far too dangerous to sort of have it out here uh, in the public. High-powered rifles, a Tech-9 machine gun, all the things that you typically see in a drug seizure. Uh, now, this all started with uh, one investigation in the city of Vaughan, that would be Project Zen, and then later the second Project Moon was an investigation in Markham. Uh, police say that these operations were basically running on the threat of violence in many ways, and that's why we see the high-powered guns. But the interesting sort of nugget in all this is that this all started with the illicit cannabis sales. And what police say they would do is essentially uh, use loopholes in the medical marijuana licensing system, uh, where they would essentially lease licenses from people who legitimately got their license and then use it to grow cannabis but none of it would actually go to the legal or medical users who they were licensed to grow this for. Instead, they would sell this stuff on the streets, use the money to buy presses and other material equipment that would be used to produce some of the harder drugs that we mentioned. So a, a really sort of in-depth, thorough um, um, operation here that police seem to have dismantled. Police, they, they love nothing more than these show-and-tells with large stacks of yeah. cash and drugs. Isn't that right, Mark? Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's become a... It's something that's become commonplace for uh, years and years, but it all—it is always something that is, you know, very, very much awesome to see in many ways. I mean, and I don't mean awesome in the terms of like, hey, that's awesome. I mean, just seeing the amount of stuff here that they've seized, and this is only a portion of it. Uh, it's just an incredible, and it, it sort of gives you a perspective, a look at the, the scale of this operation that they've dismantled. 
Do they think they've really put any kind of a dent into this at all? I think on the individual scale, in terms of these individual operations, which they say are linked to organized Asian organized crime groups, I think they feel as though they've dismantled these particular rings. Of course, as we always know, though, in situations like this, when you take one down, uh, there's always another group ready to, you know, step right in and fill the void. So whether they feel as though this has completely eliminated organized crime and drug trafficking in York region, uh, I don't know that they're necessarily so confident about that. Uh, and this is an operation that they say spanned right across the GTA. So there's a lot of territory for them to handle here. So, you know, uh, uh, dismantling of one group, yes. Uh, ending of you know, all of this in its entirety, certainly no. Yeah, and obviously the, the amount of times that they do this sort of thing and put all the cash on the table and the guns on the table, and then a couple of months later they call another one of these things, and it seems like you, you sometimes wonder, are, are these stocks, uh, these props that you have in the back room? Because it just again and again, I'm not that I'm suggesting they're doing that. Uh, Mark, yeah. thank you so much. I appreciate that. And before I let you go, Mark, of course you can see Mark's report and you can see what he's talking about tonight on Global News. But, Mark, did you know that it's International Cat Day? Uh, I, I didn't. That's, um, well, that's just great. That's how do you, how do you feel about cats? I'm just taking a quick straw poll. <laughs> uh, I'm more of a dog guy myself. I did have a cat for many years and he was great cause he was a dog in a cat's body, but, uh, I'm more of a dog guy personally. Did your, your cat in a dog's body like to swim? Uh, no, hated it. Hated baths, hated everything to do with water aside from drinking it. All right. Well, Mark, when we come back on the Alicarta radio program, news of a cat in British Columbia who likes to swim. It is International Cat Day. I kid you not. Mark Carcassel, thank you for being with us. That's amazing. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> All right. Stay Cats with us. Deadly animals. Yes. Deadly. Deadly animals. <laughs> We have news from Kelowna about a swimming cat that was recorded on the recent Holiday Monday. Let's play a little bit of that for you, shall we? Look at that. I thought cats hated water, too. Yeah, I thought cats hated water, too. Turns out they just hate people. What you're listening to is an audio from a video that shows a woman swimming with a black cat on a leash. Uh-huh. And then the young woman gets out of the water, and everybody goes over and goes, what's what's the deal? And she's like, what? I, I go swimming with my cat all the time. Ain't no deal. Cats. Am I right? Coming up, my story about why I do not like cats on International Cat Day. According to a study published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, adopting a pet could actually help with severe depression. Two Portuguese researchers recruited 80 participants with that kind of depression, known as treatment-resistant major depressive disorder, and then found that adopting a pet enhanced the effects of antidepressant medication for a significant number of volunteers in that research. But now come on. That's not realistic. Obviously, for many people, it is not. Depression is not solved so easily. And that is something my next guest has written about in her new book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. 
Anna Mailer Pepperney has battled mental illness. She survived suicide attempts. And now she has turned her journalistic eye towards discovering what is going on inside her head and how it might be fixed. Anna joins me on the line. Hi, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. What jumped out at me immediately was, as much as this is a discussion about your personal journey, it is also very a cold-eyed look at the science behind depression, and there are many, many questions that are unanswered. Absolutely, yeah. I felt like... um I found we sort of talk about talking about mental illness a lot, but we don't really address it head on. We don't really ask the difficult questions because they're painful and and uncomfortable. But the consequences to not, you know, asking these tough questions and addressing this in often painful ways is that we don't really uh, discuss the things that are tearing people up inside. And so I wanted to get a better sense of that, a better sense of why we remain so bad at treating this illness, which hurts so many people. You write about suicidal thoughts in your book that you won't believe me, but procrastination is the best suicide prevention measure out there. If all else fails, if drugs and psychotherapy, thought record deconstructions all fall short and hope remains unreachable, the knowledge that you can still kill yourself tomorrow or next week or next month remains. Isn't that... It, that is so true, and we don't talk this way, this this way about this kind of illness and what it does to people. I know it's an, and it sounds kind of counterintuitive. Like one thing my doctor would say. Um, I mean, there were a couple of things he said that I found were really helpful, but sound to like the layperson as being kind of strange. Um, when I talked to him about how I wanted to kill myself but didn't, he would ask, "Well, what stops you?" And it sounds really weird because it sounds like he's almost goading me into attempting, um, which he wasn't. What he was doing was making me put into words the reasons I had for living, which was so important to do. But the other thing he would say is if I talked to him about, you know, like, I'm overcome by wanting to die. I don't know what to do. I'm feeling really, like, helpless and despairing. He'd say, look, you can still kill yourself next week. And... It felt, again, like, it's not, it's not that he was giving me permission to kill myself next week. What he was saying was that, like, even though it felt so desperate and so immediate, the need to die, I could put it off. And then maybe in the interim, I could find, I could re-find a reason for living. And you go through in your book some of the ways to try and find that reason, that way of living, and... You go through, you know, what we would expect in terms of, you know, pharmaceuticals, but then you go even further in there, and you write in one of the chapters, as with almost every depression treatment right now, you don't know whether burning holes in your brain will alleviate your depression until you try it. Did you actually consider doing something like that? I have considered it, and it's still in the back of my head. I mean, I'm still trying to find something that works. And if nothing I try helps, I may well attempt um, or see if I'm a candidate for um, an anterior cingulotomy because it's been found to work. It's an extreme and invasive procedure. Um, it's not something that, you know, fits for everyone. That's for, that's for sure. But it's something that one of his practitioners said is underutilized because people either don't know about it 
or because it's seen as such a scary option, um, people don't want to venture there. Um, but there are invasive procedures that people are trying. Um, deep brain stimulation is another one um, where you implant an electrode in your brain. Um, there, are, there are things that people are experimenting with that, you know, that, that they have high hopes for. And we're still not sure, you know, who they'll work on, whether they'll work. But it's important, I think, not to lose hope in um, in newer and more unusual methods. And especially, with, it, it jumped out at me reading your book, talking about electric shock, th- shock therapy. And, you you know, just in, in terms of public awareness about it, you think, well, that's something we did in the 50s and the 60s, and we just don't do that anymore. But there is some science that says it can be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something, actually, that I tried. Um, and while it didn't have, you know, the ideal effect on me, um, it has a high rate of, of response. Um, so it's something that, like, should be available to people now. It should be something that people get educated about um, and that they have a chance to try if their doctors think it might, it might help them. So these are things that, you know, we again, as you said, we thought were sort of relegated to the 50s and 50s. We thought we were, part, you know, the realm of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, when in actual fact, they remain, you know, a tool in the 21st century toolbox of depression treatment. Just quickly, I want to sum up with something that you write about mental illness, and you write that you do understand the rejection of the very idea of mental illness, a repudiation of medicalizing of the mind. Many people reject the idea that the things that make them unique could be reduced to a series of electric impulses. Why is it important for you and in your journey to call this an illness and name it and understand it? Because illnesses get resources. Um, things that we call illnesses, whether it's you know social resources and understanding, whether it's treatment resources, whether it's financial resources, whether it's you know human rights protections for people with chronic illness and disabilities, um, we need to take this seriously because it's killing people. And in order to do that, I think we need. I think society recognizes that diseases, that illnesses, are serious things, and we need to treat them as such. And so, I don't think we have the time to sort of have get into these little debates over like, is it an illness? Isn't it an illness? Is it biological? Is it not? Um, this is a serious condition that destroys people, and we need to treat it as something that warrants our absolute attention. Anna Mailer Paperty is the author of a new book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, Depression in the First Person. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. There is new research out of Penn State University, and I think you're going to find this shocking. Men are avoiding environmentally friendly activities because why? They fear that anyone who catches them recycling or carrying a reusable bag may think that they're gay. I'm not making this up. This is a new study, gender bending and gender conformity, the social consequences of engaging in feminine and masculine pro-environmental behaviors. Now, the study found that men perhaps are unwilling to perform these environmentally friendly tasks because they seem to be gendered. Joanne Sankadardi is with the Recycling Council of Ontario and joins me on the line. And Joanne, when you hear this, does this strike you as ridiculous or do you think there's something to it? 
It's one of the words that came to mind. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I have never heard of such a study. I, I certainly have not heard of the uh, of, of perf- uh, living life in a, with environmental consciousness as something that became connected to sexual preference. It seems the only world, one of the words that could come up absolutely is ridiculous. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we're in this day and age even having these conversations, but, uh, but alas, we are. I'll give you a little bit more detail. The study asked 960 participants, male and female, to evaluate whether fictional characters felt feminine or masculine based on a series of environmentally friendly activities. Is there any evidence that you have that men and women recycle differently because of some kind of gender bias? Um, we, there has been studies done in the past that show, um, you know, and it's probably, you know, directly that show that, that, that females tend to be better recyclers. They just participate more fulsomely. They're more aware of, you know, what goes in the blue box, what doesn't. Um, they, they make more effort, if you will, um, to participate in the residential programs that are offered to households. But that uh, evidence is pretty aged, and that's probably back in the time when, you know, more women than men stayed home and ran households. But I'm certain that if we repeated that that uh, source of uh, or that study today, it would give us very different results. I, I, I don't think there's any, you know, diff- gender differentials in terms of, uh, of, of, of who should be or who could be, um, you know, living more waste-free living. I, I, I think that we're, we're much past that, thankfully. Joanne Sankatardi is with the Recycling Council of Ontario. I appreciate your perspective on this. No problem. Where in Canada is the best community to live? Well, McLean's has published a list of what it claims are the best communities in Canada. And my hometown of Burlington, Ontario, is this year's winning city, ranking in the top 25% in six out of ten categories measured by McLean's. And it is also this year's best place to raise a family. McLean's writes, quote, Burlington's hybrid location sometimes grouped in with the Hamilton-Niagara region, sometimes considered part of the greater Toronto area, working to its advantage. Residents have the option of commuting to either area or working within Burlington itself, which is home to many major manufacturing employers. And the city also offers access to the natural environment, something that can be hard to come by without spending hours in the car in other parts of the GTA. The city is part of the Halton region, which has some of the lowest crime in the country. It's got great weather, at least when you compare it to the rest of Canada, with relatively warm and dry winters and summers. And residents enjoy great access to health care and the amenities of the big city, including entertainment options. To talk about Burlington and whether or not that is an accurate representation of the city, I am joined by the mayor of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward. Hello, Mayor. Hey, great to be with you. Very exciting day for us. Uh, so obviously you're going to concur with everything that I just said there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, absolutely. And, and it's got a little bit of everything for everybody. And I can tell you, uh, when I, when I saw the news come out and read the listings, I've had the privilege to live in, uh, some of the top, you know, 10 cities in the whole country. Ottawa's up there, Kingston's there. I've lived there, Toronto, I've lived there for 10 years and, 
Um, and Burlington, uh, I will say unequivocally from my experience, is the best place to live in in the country. And not surprised we got the ranking. And, and for me, it's, my, it's a city by choice. You know, we moved there uh, 19 years ago with our family out of choice. We didn't end up there. and We picked it for all of the reasons that, um, that you just mentioned and that are noted in the McLean's Magazine article. As so many people have picked it either to move there or if they are from there to move back. I was born at Joseph Brand Hospital, grew up in Burlington, and like many people, you know, growing up in the suburbs, I just could not wait to leave, um, <laughs> and then, you know, shot out of a cannon to get as far away from home as possible, but now going back, you look at it, and you, I look at it from a different perspective, and the city has changed rather dramatically, especially in the last 10 to 15 years in the waterfront area. Tell us about that, Mayor. Well, we uh, one of the things that we ranked high on in the McLeans was culture and amenities, community amenities. And, uh, you know, I can tell you when I've gone into high schools, I have kids, three kids, my husband and I, uh, now 18 and 20. And um, I, I used to hear uh, way back when that, uh, that the young folks would describe Burlington as Borington. And, uh, I've said you know, that. We, I absolutely uh, said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do hear it from time to time, but it's, um, you know, with the festivals that we now have, uh, you know, I remember a lot of folks saying, a lot of young people saying, uh, you know, my favorite time of Burlington, uh, in Burlington in the year is the Sound of Music Festival, because that that really was something, free festival, four days of music, biggest uh, free music and longest free music festival in the whole country, and we pride ourselves on that, and that's right down at the waterfront. So we have uh, almost every weekend there's something going on in Spencer Smith Park for people of all ages. We had a food truck festival, we had the Halton Freedom Festival uh, just this weekend that was celebrating diversity and the uh, and, and emancipation. So, uh, and some of those are newer festivals, or they've grown in the time that that we've been there. Certainly, so I think there's a lot more to do. And then, and of course, our our natural environment is really unparalleled in the region. You know, within about ten minutes, you can be walking. Uh, you know, four or five conservation areas, falls hills, you can do rock climbing, uh, mountain biking, skiing, you know, my kids learned to ski at Glen Eden. There is really nothing like that uh, that is so close to the region, uh, so close to the city, to be able to have all of that right on your doorstep. Marianne Mead-Ward is the mayor of Burlington and reacting to McLean's declaring Burlington this year's winning city, best community in Canada. Mayor, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for your interest. All right, let's talk about the reality of it. I mentioned that I grew up in Burlington. Let's check in with a Burlington resident, a business owner and a longtime friend of mine. Steve Milner is on the line. Steve, hi, how are you? Good afternoon, Alan. How are you? I'm good. Do you concur with this? I mean, let's take the politics out of it. Is it you've chosen to live there your entire life? I absolutely concur with the article. Burlington is... Uh, was was a wonderful place to grow up when I was growing up, and it is a, a community and a city that I wanted my children to grow up in as well, and that's why we've remained here. Except for, dude, the traffic is insane. <laughs> Trying to get out there, like my parents still live there, as you know, and are coming out to see you and mooch from your pool, it takes me forever. Well, you're right. I think that's just part of the growing pains of the, like, uh, like you mentioned, the city has, has changed quite a bit. 
in the last 10 or 15 years. And, and one of those changes has been, has been a, a population increase. And I, and I think there's just some growing pains with the, with the roads and the traffic and, and commuting, but uh, we're, I have a lot of confidence in our, in our mayor. Uh, she's always done a great job for the city and, uh, and I, I think she will continue to do so. And I'm, I'm quite confident she'll address the problems and, and you, you won't be complaining about that by the end of her, uh, by the end of her tenure. Oh, what, what you think driving, over to the skyways, oh, she's going to solve that? Come on. That's not going to happen. Well, maybe not the skyway, but the, but the inner roads of Burley. Oh, the inner roads. Yes, 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 absolutely. She, she can't do anything about the highway. Because yeah. I, one of the stories that you and I have talked about in the past is New Street, which is one of the major uh, roads in, in southern Burlington. At one point, they just took a lane out to put in a bike lane, even though there was actually a segregated bike lane in a park like 100 meters away. That's correct. Yeah, that was very frustrating for. I lived in the the ward that was uh, affected by that. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a frustrating thing. But they they did they did the right thing and they they reverted it back. It uh, apparently it was a experiment and it just was an experiment. It's just the fact that, you, that Burlington hates bikers. Is that right? Am I right with that? <laughs> you guys hate cyclists there. That is not true. Burlington actually is a is a, a quite a cycling community. There's a lot of uh, cycling paths, and if you go down to the water, you don't even like own a Smith, bike. <laughs> I own one. I just don't ride it. There's a difference. <laughs> it's because you're just like you and everybody else in that city is driving a giant truck or SUV. Well, yeah, I, I think it's to one go of the to get milk. You can't walk anywhere. It's true. It's it, because realistically, what are you going to do? Are you going to hop on your bike and, and and bike to the grocery store and then? haul your groceries back. It, it, it doesn't sound practical. No. Yeah. Nobody goes to Costco on a bike. Nobody. No, no nobody. Nobody. You're not, not, not with buying anything anyway. So I, I was disappointed, though, that you didn't ask the mayor how she feels about cats. How do you I, feel I, about cats? Well, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm more of a dog person. I, I, I thought that maybe, you know, because your, your two favorite things are being combined then, cats and musicals, that maybe we could just okay, no, don't. book that off on the, the, See, no. the upcoming musical is coming out on film. I, you know. I, and I know you'll be in line. You'll be the first one to see that atrocity. <laughs> I know you will. Steve Milner, i got to let you go. Steve Milner, uh, a longtime friend, a business owner, and resident of Burlington, Ontario, joining me on the line. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me, Alan. I have Willie Nelson news. Willie has canceled his tour because he has a breathing problem. But you were always on my mind. The 86-year-old singer apologizing on Twitter late yesterday saying he needs to check in with his doctor. He adds, quote, I'll be back. Nelson had just finished performing with Allison Krauss in Toledo and was next scheduled to appear in Michigan. He's been forced to cancel a number of dates. He canceled some back in 2018 due to illness. Still with music, there's a traffic jam in London on one particular road today, Abbey Road. It's been 50 years since one of the most iconic photos in modern musical history was taken. The cover shot for the album Abbey Road, in which, and you know it, The Beatles, four of them, crossing the street just outside Abbey Road Studios in London. Today, hundreds of fans are lining up to recreate that shot, causing traffic jams along the way. Half a century after the photo was taken, spectators also rose up their cell phones to snap photos of Beatles lookalikes crossing the famous Abbey Road pedestrian crossing, in tribute to the original image. 
At 11.35am on August 8th, 1969, Ian McMillan photographed John, Paul, George and Ringo striding across the black and white zebra crossing while a police officer stopped traffic. Used as the cover of the band's penultimate studio album, it became one of the most famous images in music history. Karen Chamas, London. And so today, if you've been on the old social media machine, you see, as the reporter mentioned, there are all of these people trying to walk across the thing and, you know, take pictures. And then there's all these cars, like, trying to turn right. Like, come on! Love, love me, do! Forget about it! Fab four, my butt! I gotta get to work! Everyone is outraged in the world. First, it was the Oscars, and now the Emmys are going without a host. And as a man who makes his living as an anchor, as a host, this is bad news. And why is this? Oh, I think you know, if you think about it. Because who's left in the world that you could pick that some horrible thing wouldn't come out about? And you'd be like, well, sorry, we can't have you do it. I mean, who's left? Somebody would be outraged about something somebody said at some point, and then that host is gone. The head of Fox Entertainment says the ceremony is going to ditch the host when it takes its turn at airing the show. Here's Charlie Collier confirming what many insiders suspected. What's interesting about this year to me is how many amazing shows we're saying goodbye to, right? I mean, you've got obviously Game of Thrones and Our Own Empire. You've got Veep and Big Bang Theory. And, and so... And this is new to me. I've never worked on the Emmys before. You really do have to look at all the trade-offs of, all right, if you have a host and an opening number, that's 15, 20 minutes you can't use to salute the shows. Yeah. You know what people tune in for? Is the song and dance number. That's what people like. Come on. That's welcome. I mean, they want to see Ricky Gervais rip the throat out of some rich people. That's what people want to see. But in today's day and world, I, that cannot happen because somebody would be upset. Did I mention that it's International Cat Day? I think I might have. This I'm reading from the people at Whiskers sending out a press release today in which they list here now four benefits of owning a cat. Their purring has healing properties, according to this. If your cat is happy and comfortable, its purr vibrates at a frequency that is associated with the therapeutic healing of human bones and muscle. Get over here, cat! Need a massage. The cat's not going to do that. You know it. Next reason, they contribute to reduce stress and anxiety. Having a cat around releases endorphins, which lowers your stress and anxiety. This is according to Whiskas. That makes cat food, so you know, you know what that's about. I tell you what, six a.m. My cat starts howling at the top of its lung for breakfast. That does not reduce my stress or anxiety. Uh, here's the other bonus: they are independent. Yeah, no kidding, independent. Like screw you, owner. I own this house, and an unconditional love is listed as the. Fourth and final benefit of owning a cat. Unconditional love? Does Whiskers, do they know cats? Have they ever met a cat? I've been promising all hour the reason why I don't like cats. 
I've had a number of cats in my life. I mentioned I have a, have a cat now. It's a disabled cat. If you're going to get a cat, get one of these. It's a, a wobbly cat, has a neurological disorder, means that it can't really walk. It looks drunk whenever it walks, which is hysterically funny. So it And it just kind of tumbles along, and it cannot get up on things. It can't get on the counter. It can't get on the bed. And it certainly can't do what my first cat did. When I was a tween, maybe 13 years old, my dad refinished the basement and built me a little room down there in the basement. And there I was in my room with the drop ceiling. You know the ones I'm talking about with the little styrofoam rectangles on the drop ceiling. Well, of course, the basement wasn't entirely finished. So the cat would, in the middle of the night, find some way in another portion of the basement to crawl up into the ceiling and then wander along the portions of the drop ceiling. One morning, at about 5.30, 6 a.m., the sun had come up. There was enough light in the room I could see. I woke up on my single bed, 13 years old, I could hear something. I looked up, and that styrofoam rectangle gave way, and out of it, descending down, falling, was a cat. Claws out. It dropped directly onto my chest and scampered off. I've never forgotten it, and I've never forgiven it. Alan, Alan, please stop crying. Cats are dangerous animals, people. And so, that is the reason I do not like cats. How do you feel about seagulls? Well, I'm talking about animals we don't like. Seagulls are notorious for stealing your food. Have you been to the beach lately? Now, a study suggests that there is a way to avoid that from happening. Here is Redmond Shannon. Seagulls. They have no table manners and just don't know when they're full. The seaside snack snatchers have become so troublesome on Jersey Shore that a falcon has been put on patrol to scare them off. An ocean away in Britain, their reputation is no different. If you go down to Cornwall, they're very raucous and noisy. But I do have fond memories of a seagull stealing my dad's Cornish pasty when we were on holiday in Devon. In fact, last month in Devon, Gizmo the Chihuahua was snatched by a gull, never to be seen again. But now researchers here in the UK say the best way to stop a gull from gulping your lunch is to stare it down. Researchers threw the evil eye at a total of 74 gulls. We found that overall gulls took longer to approach when I was looking at them. Some wouldn't um, touch the food at all when I was looking at them. They all did approach um, and touch the food when I was looking away. On average, the gulls took 21 seconds longer to approach when being stared at. It seems that perhaps it's only a small number of urban gulls that are actually are doing this. and. For the ones that do snatch food, it seems very likely that just a small change in human behaviour might actually reduce the chance of someone losing their food to a gull. 
The research team added a small number of goals may actually be giving the rest a bad name. So having tested the theory here in London, the question is, does it work? The answer is not really. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. You know what I would suggest getting is a cat. That would take care of those seagulls. Well, we're wrapping up here on International Cat Day. God, I hate this freaking cat. Oh, is that not the truth? Again, I recommend if you are going to get a cat, get one with a neurological disease. They're the best kind. It's a rescue cat. Come on. I was being nice. So I'm a nice guy? 